As Jesus was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said, no one. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I love stories. My father was a preacher, my mother was a writer, and I was surrounded with stories growing up. I love stories. My maternal grandparents would tell me stories too. Those were special stories for me because they were stories of what it was like to live here in Colorado in the 1880s and the early 1900s. And they would tell me stories of how the family came by covered wagon, and those were stories of strength and courage and inspiration. And there's another kind of story, we all have them, those stories that are incidents that happen in our own lives and become part of the fabric of our lives, we just don't forget them. And one story that I can't forget came about because of my job. I um, am not a caseworker, I am not a social worker, I am not someone with a degree in criminal justice. So it was rather surprising to me to find myself working for 33rd Judicial Court. I worked for the family division. In my first job, I was hired to be a probation officer. I'm actually a teacher. I had taught for many years, and I loved it. I stayed home with my daughter. I loved that. But when it was time to go back to work full-time in our area, the schools were consolidating. They were laying off teachers left and right. And I now believe God led me to where I am because I have developed a passion for working with young people who are struggling to know where to go with their lives. And so as I was hired to be a probation officer and an in-home care worker, the in-home care worker part meant that I was not going to sit in a nice air-conditioned office in the summertime. I was not going to be nice and warm on those long winter days in Michigan. I was going to be out in the community because if you were assigned to my caseload, you were to be seen at school, at work, at summer jobs, recreational activities, wherever they were, that's where I was to be. And I was also to meet with their parents at least once a week when it was convenient for them and wherever they wanted to meet. And I soon realized that I had to know their stories, the stories that had come before, because if I was going to help them rewrite the narrative of their lives, I had to know what had happened. What had happened that this family needed court intervention? There is one mother I will never forget. Her story was similar to many I heard. I heard stories of child abuse and trauma, poverty, struggle, but I also heard stories of people overcoming great odds, people with beautiful characters, trying to do the best for their children. And this mother was somebody who had had a rough life. Life just hadn't been kind to her. 
but she had a passion for her children. She wanted to see them succeed. And as I learned her story, I realized that she had a rather peculiar habit. She giggled. I mean, she giggled a lot, and at very inopportune times. And that may not sound like a problem, but she had to come into court about once every 30 days and report to the judge. And I have to tell you that if you are listening to a judge and he says, how is your child doing, and you giggle at the judge, it does not go well for you. <laughs> and so I quickly learned that I needed to work with her on some things. And we talked about it. I said, you know, you know your child better than anybody else, so have some confidence. And we worked on her communication skills, and she began to make progress. And so did her child. So one summer day, I was feeling really comfortable going to their house. I mean, we had a good rapport. In fact, I can still remember the phrase she would use when I would come to the door. She'd say, hey, Danny, come on in and chat. So I was expecting to hear that, and I knocked on the door. I mean, this is a scheduled appointment. It's no surprise. And it was hot. I still remember standing on that hot porch, and she didn't come to the door. If you've ever sold cookies or anything like that door to door, you know the feeling. You knock on the door. You can hear somebody in there, but they just won't come. So I'm standing there thinking, wait a minute here. We, we scheduled this at a time that was good for you. Maybe she just didn't hear me. So I knocked louder again. And I can hear her in there, but again, the same response, she doesn't come. And I begin to get a little irritated at this point. And I was just about to turn and walk away and think I'll write something in my notes about this when she opened the door, but just a crack. And then she stood in that crack and see part of her face and she was just giggling. I thought, well, what do I do now? So I, I tried saying, hello, how are you doing? She still didn't invite me in. And while I was trying to figure it out, she finally opened the door, but she blocked the doorway to the rest of the house. I'm just in the little tiny galley kitchen, and she's blocking the rest of it. And she's standing there giggling. So I tried to ask, well, how did your child do yesterday, this kind of thing, and she just giggled. And because I knew her story, because I realized that there was something, she's sending me some kind of signal, an internal alarm began to go off, and I thought, you know, maybe I need to leave. So I said to her, this just doesn't seem to be working out to be a good time for you. No, no, Danny, it's not, she said. So I said, well, should I come back before I can even get the rest of the sentence out? She says, yes, yes, come another time. And I said, well, you'll call me? Yes, and she practically, physically shoved me out the door. I was totally confused. What's going on? I didn't have long to wait. The next morning, her phone number showed up on my phone. And as I answered the phone, thinking we were going to reschedule, I heard nothing but hysterical sobbing. I mean, this woman is crying so hard, she can hardly get her breath. And I can tell she's trying to tell me something, but I can't figure out what it is. And at last, I make out the words, Danny, my boyfriend was arrested for murder last night, and I don't know what to do. And I'm thinking, I don't know what to do either. We've only had a couple of homicides in our county in like, 30 years, so I thought, I'm not trained to deal with this, but I could tell she was in pain, and so I said, I'll come, I'll come right now. But she didn't tell me to come, she just kept crying. And finally, I get the next phrase, and she said, Danny, I couldn't have you come in yesterday because he was here, and I didn't know he'd killed anybody, but I knew he didn't like court people, and he was hiding under the bed, and that's why I couldn't invite you in. And you know, I don't want to be melodramatic or read too much into that. But over the years, I have thought that if I had not known her story, that visit could have ended very differently. You see, stories can save. Knowing the story can save us, and the Bible is full of salvation stories. And today's passage is short, but I think it's such a powerful story of God's saving grace. Let's turn once again. I know you've read it in the Daily Walk this week. 
But let's look once again at John 8, starting with verse 2. It's page 990 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. And I'm reading from the New International Version. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple court where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. Can you picture that scene? Jesus with eager learners all around him. I am sure they are clinging to every single word because I think he's probably asking them to recalibrate. He wants them to dig deeper. He's shifting their theology because you see, they don't understand who his father is. They see him as a taskmaster. And Jesus wants to change their view of his father to know who he really is. And Jesus is also asking them to find out who he is and why he has come. And as they're clinging to every word, we read that there's a sudden chaotic interruption. Continuing in verse three, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. The message paraphrase puts it like this, they stood her in plain sight. And my first reaction is, how is that ever appropriate? She's been drugged out of bed, she's scantily clothed, and you bring her almost into the temple? But it doesn't seem to faze them because I think they have an agenda. But let's turn our attention to the woman for a moment. Can you imagine, she's facing the death penalty and she's being publicly humiliated in the worst possible way. She stands alone, exposed. There is no family friend, no family member, no loved one to shield and defend her. And she doesn't even have a high-powered attorney to make a case for insanity or say she's been framed or to plead for mercy. No, she is just alone, facing death and shame. And then I think there's the injustice of it all. In case you haven't noticed, adultery takes two people and they have only brought the woman into the crowd. I think that right then, it's very plain to see what is going on with those Pharisees. But first I wanna tell you a little bit about the description that William Earnhardt wrote. It went something like this. It kind of lays the setting for this woman. He told her that he loved her. And he said she was beautiful. Oh, he said she was special. He was gonna love her for the rest of their lives. And then suddenly, She's yanked from bed by the friends of him. And he, he who had just promised her she was his special girl forever, just stands there and watches her be dragged away to a horrible death. Can you imagine what she's feeling? Now she is kneeling before Jesus, half naked, humiliated, and I'm sure her eyes are closed because she doesn't want to see those stones that are about to crush her face. And she's trembling and just wondering, when will it be over? She doesn't know it yet, but this woman is in a very safe place. She's at the feet of Jesus. And you know, we may not be able to identify with her fear of stones hitting us in the face, but as sinners, we know some of those other feelings. We can identify with her shame and humiliation, sense of failure, because sometimes our failures can seem so big that we wonder if Jesus can ever put us back together again. And yet when we kneel before Jesus, we are kneeling before our Creator, our God, our best friend, and the only one who can transform us and put our lives back together again. The passage continues. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Those intentions of those religious leaders are certainly bare for all to see now. They have no real interest in the law. If they did, wouldn't they have brought the man in for punishment too? 
They simply want to trap Jesus. And it's hard to imagine why they would want to trap him, but I think it's because he has drawn the masses away from them. They've lost power, they've lost control, and besides, Jesus doesn't do doctrine quite the way they want it done. And so they want to be rid of Jesus. And you have to admit, they've come up with a pretty good plan. Because you see, I'm sure they thought because of his grace and mercy that he's talked about that he'll probably be lenient with this woman. Oh, but if he is, he's forgotten the sacred law of Moses. He'll be going against it. But if he isn't merciful to her, well, why would the crowds keep following him? You know, you can't say, come to me, all ye who are weary, and I will have you stoned. No, they're not going to come back again. Besides that, if he does say, okay, go ahead and stone her, well, then the Romans are going to be disgusted and probably have his head because they are the ones that have the jurisdiction over capital cases. I've had to testify in court quite often, and when I testify, sometimes I feel a sense of relief when I realize that the opposition has forgotten something. You know, if they, if they forget a key point, or you can tell they don't quite understand the central issue of this case, you kind of sigh because you know, okay, now I can make my case and it'll probably go the way I want it to. They have forgotten something in this case, too. And it's not Jesus that has forgotten anything, it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and I think what they forgot, they forgot the passionate love that our Father in heaven has for sinners. The great depth of his love. And I wonder sometimes, do I really understand it totally? Do we? And if we do, do we communicate it to those around us? Timothy Keller has written some things about the difficulties that we in church face sometimes. He wrote this, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious, while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches do not have that effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted do not bother coming to our churches. We tend to draw buttoned-down, moralistic people. The broken and the marginal avoid church. And yet, Jesus, as we see in this story, he is attracted to the, those who are marginalized and broken. This past summer, my husband Lee and I had the privilege of hearing the author Philip Yancey speak. Some of you know him from the book, The Jesus I Never Knew. We have a Chautauqua, kind of like you do here in our area. It's called Bayview. It's a summer community. We love to go there. It's Victorian cottages all around the lakeshore. They have all kinds of art classes and workshops of every kind and description. There's a big auditorium with wonderful programs, a musical, dramas. They do a lot, and they have a music conservatory there, but one of the nicest things is they bring in special speakers, sometimes for a lecture series, sometimes just to speak for the day. And Philip Yancey came for the day, so we went to hear him. He was talking about his book called Vanishing Grace, and he reflects in that book that largely in the Western culture, there's a negative view of Christians. And then he wondered if we stay true to our purpose, he said our purpose is dispensing God's grace to a thirsty world. I like those words, dispensing God's grace to a thirsty world. But then he wondered, why is it in today's society that Christians are known more for their politics than for their grace? That haunted me, for we have Jesus. Perhaps it points ever again to the, th that we must always make the gospel story first and foremost and everything we preach, everything we teach, and in how we live our lives. 
Long ago in Birmingham, England, there was a rough, tough man. He was known as a rough, tough character. And he hung out with a rough, tough group of men. And one day, our rough, tough man just sort of stumbled into a meeting for, that was being put on by the Salvation Army. And he did not get a lot of theology that day. It was just one meeting. But he heard the gospel story, and he fell in love with Jesus Christ. And of course, his life began to change. But that rough, tough group of friends were not very impressed. In fact, they didn't like his change in lifestyle, so they began to harass him. They would tease him. They would make his life miserable. And one day, they were at it again, and he became so flustered, he couldn't even answer simple questions. They were having fun with this. They said, so who is Jesus' father? And he said, I don't know. And they're thinking, well, if you know the Christmas story, you should be able to get some of this. They said, well, who is Jesus' mother? And he said, I don't know. Well, where was he born? I don't know. And finally, they said, how did he die? And he put his head down. He said, I don't know. And they said, what kind of Christian are you? And they're laughing. You don't know who his father was. You don't know who his mother was. You don't know where he lived. You don't know how he died. What kind of Christian are you? And he was so ashamed and flustered, and he just hung his head. And finally, he looked up, and he said, but I know Jesus saved me. And I think if the teachers of the law and the Pharisees could have gotten just that much, if they could have just known that Jesus saved them, our story could end right here, but it doesn't. So let's read again. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And can you just imagine that that woman thinks a stone's going to hit her any moment? For this group is pretty self-righteous. But the Pharisees don't throw stones. They continue to badger and demand and keep asking Jesus for an answer because they're so sure they can win this confrontation. You see, they're worried about politics and the power play, but Jesus, our Jesus, is always worried about us. He's always caring about us. He cares about redemption, love, and transformation. And so what did he write? Well, the Bible isn't really clear on it, but the classic book, Desire of Ages, describes it like this, impatient with his delay, and his apparent indifference, the accusers drew nearer. But as their eyes following those of Jesus fell upon the pavement at his feet, their countenance changed. There traced before them were the guilty secrets of their own lives. I don't know about you, but I would not want the guilty secrets of my life made public. And Jesus is so gracious here. He could have ended their political and religious careers in just a moment. But instead, he writes it where only they look at it and know what's going on. He gives them grace even though they have rejected him. He gives them dignity even though he has, they have been rejecting him. What kind of God gives grace and dignity to those who have hard hearts? I think if we ever wonder what God the Father is like, we only have to see how Jesus ministered in this story. Grace and dignity to those who don't want him. And then the Bible continues. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, with only Jesus left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. I am sure that that trembling woman is just waiting for the stones when she hears those footsteps receding. She must wonder what is going on. And I can imagine that she probably opened one eye at this point just to see. And there she finds herself with only Jesus. And then she hears something wonderful. You know, that morning as she was dragged through the crowd, 
and she was being called an adulteress, I'm sure she was called some pretty awful names. And having worked with some young women who are in trouble, I have heard those names, and they hurt. And she's heard those too that day, but now she hears woman. And remember, this is the name that he uses for his mother. It's a term of respect. And I believe that when she's no longer called a whore, but called a woman, she begins her transformation right then when Jesus gives her respect. Notice this Jesus didn't say to her, uh, would you come and meet with the elders first? We need to talk about what's been going on in your life. <laughs> Nor did he say to her, there's a series of meetings I want you to attend. He didn't even say, please sign up for BibleStudyOffer.com. No, he just said, not now, not now. He wouldn't do that. He said, just come to me. He just ministered to her need. And I think this may be one of the most beautiful moments of forgiveness in the whole gospel because it's when she's suffering humiliation, when she's in the moment of her sin, that he offers her no condemnation. Let's read his next words. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Though he is the only one with the right to judge her, he is here to seek and save and change lives, and he does not condemn her. You can imagine that she is absolutely stunned because this is not how this story usually turns out. Jesus has rewritten the story of this woman's life. He knows, though, that it isn't totally free. Somebody has to pay the penalty, and he knows it will be him. It won't be long before that mob will be hating him, calling him names. It won't be long before those smug religious leaders are screaming for his crucifixion. And it won't be long till he pays the penalty for this woman and for you and me when he hangs on a shameful cross to set us free. I have a photograph at home that I very much treasure. I remember the day it was taken. I was six years old. I was in first grade. And it was the day of our church school Christmas party. And being a first grader, you know, it's my first party. I'm pretty excited. And I remember also being kind of proud because somebody had decided that it was part of my father's pastoral duties to dress up as Santa Claus. And so he's in a Santa Claus suit and, and a big fake beard. And you know, when I look at that picture, I can't remember much about that party that excited me so much that day. I don't know if we played games. I can't remember if we drew names or maybe the school board just bought us all pencils or something to be passed out. I don't know if we had cake, ice cream, or Christmas cookies. But I do know this, that when I look at that picture, what I see is a big man holding a tiny little girl with the love of my father in his eyes. And even though that was years and years and years ago, I can still, when I look at that picture, feel what it felt like to be held in my father's arms, safe, secure, and very loved. And I can't tell you about the woman in our story. I don't know if she had a good earthly father to show her love. It's pretty obvious she had some relationship issues that morning but I don't know about her earthly father, but I do know this, that in that moment when Jesus respected her, when he didn't condemn her, when he forgave her, I believe that right then she knew what it was like to be held in the heavenly father's arms, safe, secure, and very loved. There is a story that I read a few weeks ago, and it has stuck with me. So this morning, as we close, I want to tell you that story. It's about another pastor and his wife and a little girl. The pastor's family 
had some children, but they didn't have all the girls they wanted. They wanted one more girl. And so they decided that they would adopt a child, that there must be some child in the community that needed a home. And so they begin the long process of talking to agencies and trying to get the adoption process going. And they discovered that there was such a child. There was a little girl who had been in a pre-adoptive placement. But for some reason, they had never integrated this child really totally into the family. It just didn't gel. And finally, these parents said, oh, this is not the child for us. We don't want her. And I can imagine the rejection and the trauma that caused that little girl. And so the pastor and his wife adopted her. They brought her into their family. And they knew she'd been through rejection and trauma. And so they wanted to change that for her. And they decided that they would need to know the history of her life. And as they began to learn the history, they discovered something. They discovered that the other family had made a trip to Disney World more than one time. It had been a trip to Disney World that the little girl had wanted to go on. But every time, for some reason, they left the little girl with a family friend. They never took her. And in her mind, I mean, maybe they had some reasons, but in her mind, it was because she was a bad little girl. They didn't want this child to continue feeling that way. And so they decided that they would take her to Disney World. Well, the, fa the father got a call about them to come and preach at a church in a Disney World. Well, that's convenient. He can go and bless that, that congregation, and he can take his family to Disney World. So he came home and he said, oh, I have a speaking engagement near Disney World. We're going to go to Disney World. And he was waiting for that little girl to just jump up and down. The rest of the family was all excited, but she showed no excitement at all. In fact, as the weeks went on, they began to see behaviors in this child they had never seen. She began to steal food when she simply had to ask to have a snack. She began to whisper the cruelest things she could possibly think of in her sister's ears, which would make her sister scream and cry, and the parents have to intervene. And she began to lie. Oh, she lied about every little thing when it would have been so much easier to just tell the truth. And so they were puzzled and trying to figure out what to do. And one night, her father is holding her on his lap, talking her through another episode of terrible behavior. When she looks at him and she says, Daddy, you are not taking me to Disney World. So he paused a moment. He chose his words carefully. And he said, well, do you belong in this family? Yes. Is this family going to Disney World? Yes. Well, then you're going to go to Disney World. And he breathed a sigh of relief. Ah, I've discovered what's been causing that behavior. It was her anxiety. And now everything will be fine. Oh, but he was so, so wrong. It was just the opposite. She got worse and worse and worse, and they thought, oh, what more can we take? But they started the journey. And the father writes that from the first hotel to the next rest area to the next hotel to the next rest area, her behavior got worse and worse and worse until the whole family thought, we can't take this child another moment. But they took her to Disney World anyway. They said, it was a typical Disney World day, you know, overpriced food, long, long lines, just enough magic to make your children want to come back again. And they got back to the hotel that night, 
tired, exhausted, and the little girl was much like any child would be who has spent one whole day at an amusement park. She was pensive, she was weepy. In fact, she was a little bit cranky, but they noticed something different. The little girl did not have any rebelliousness left in her. And so that night, they knelt with her, the mother and the father knelt with her to say her prayers and tuck her into bed. And the little girl looked up to her father and she said, Daddy, you didn't take me to Disney World because I was good. You took me because I belonged to you. I love those words. Not because I was good, but because I belonged to you. Because isn't that what God asks of us? Just come, be my child. Let me hold you, let me change you. And I think those words so describe the outrageous grace Jesus offered the woman in our story this morning and the absolutely outrageous grace he offers to you and me this morning and every day. And my call for us this morning is that we will sit at the feet of Jesus. We will be in that place where that woman was at his feet, learning of him. Make time this week to spend more time and let him hold us close and experience that outrageous grace he gives us every day. Because I believe in that outrageous grace that he gives us. When we respond, there is transformative power. And he is the one who can change us. He is the one who transforms us to live a radical life of love. So let's sit at his feet this week.